Matthew chapter 12, we're going to begin seeing the Pharisees and the religious leaders of this day and age begin to create more friction with Jesus Christ. We're going to see more friction, more animosity, more problems, more issues with Jesus. And it's, it's difficult for us to see, but so applicable for us. These Pharisees had the living God right in front of them. And yet they wanted to argue, they wanted to fight, they wanted to pick little bones. They, they were seeking all the wrong things while God was right there in front of them. Uh, we have to be careful today. There are, are so many things fighting for our attention. There are so many places where we give our time and our attention and our love and our focus to all the while the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is just waiting to spend some time with us. We have to be so careful with that. Here in Matthew chapter 12, we're going to see the Pharisees have several issues with Jesus over his dealing with the Sabbath. And it's not the biblical Sabbath that they have an issue with. It's the added rules and regulations that they created for the Sabbath. And Matthew 12, it goes right in line with this section of Matthew. We can think all the way back to chapter 9 when Jesus sees the crowds and he's moved with compassion. He sees broken people, hurting people, people that have been taken advantage of by their pastors and religious leaders, and he's just moved with compassion for them. Then he says we can begin in Matthew 11, verse 28. It says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry. And he began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All of this goes together. The religious leaders were adding more rules and more regulations, more work, more things for us to do in order to please God and be right with God. And that's just exhausting. That's tiresome. We will never get there in and our own strength. However, Jesus would tell us simply come to Him. Come to the person of Jesus. Don't just come to Calvary Chapel, Miami. Don't just come to church. Don't just come to reading your Bible. Don't just come to doctrines. Don't just come to religion. No, 
come to the person of Jesus Christ, all of us who are laboring, all of us who are heavy laden, and he will give us rest. The yoke and the weight of our sin, the yoke and the weight of our past, the yoke and the weight of trying to work our way into God being well pleased with us is heavy and exhausting. But if we lay that at the feet of Jesus and we pick up his yoke, it's easy and his burden is light. And now we see here just how heavy the yoke was that the Pharisees were putting on the people. It says that at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry. I don't know if any of you ever relate to this. Are you ever hungry? Most of the time, the time where we're the most hungry is Sundays between 11.30 and 12.30. I think that's when hunger hits its peak every, every week. And they're hungry, and they begin to pluck heads of grain and to eat. The disciples were hungry, and yet here we see them acting like poor men. They are eating food through God's given welfare system for the nation of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes we believe, God, don't I deserve an easier life? God, my life, shouldn't it be more comfortable? God, my life, shouldn't you provide all that I need? And yet here we see his own disciples having to go to Israel's food bank in order to feed themselves and to deal with their hunger. The Lord of the harvest, the one who multiplied a kid's lunchable and fed 5,000 people. The same Lord who multiplied other food and fed 4,000 people. And yet his servants, those closest to him, are hungry and don't have food, don't have money in order to feed themselves. And yet there was nothing wrong or unbiblical with what the disciples were doing. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 24 and 25, here we see God's welfare system for the nation of Israel. He says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. But you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand. But you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Now, I don't want you to use this verse in public while you're stealing grapes and you're eating them. (laughs) While you're walking through. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's, That's stealing. There's a difference here. But here, God's welfare system was if you don't work, you don't eat. So if you were hungry, you had to go into the fields and work to feed yourself, not work to fill up your pockets or your lunchbox or your container. You could pluck the heads of grain to feed your belly for its current needs, but you couldn't use the sickle to make money on your neighbors. We could think of Ruth, how she went to Boaz's fields and she was able to feed herself. This was the welfare system. And these disciples, though they served the Lord, though they were faithful, they were hungry and poor. Uh, We have to get that out of our minds. God does not bribe us into this relationship with him. He does not say, hey, if you come to me, you'll never hunger physically. You'll never be lacking money. You're going to be richer than ever, more comfortable than ever. Jesus doesn't say that anywhere. We see his disciples literally having to go to the food bank to feed themselves. The Pharisees, they were not angry because the disciples were doing something unbiblical. The Pharisees were angry that the disciples were breaking the rules that they had made up. 
rules in which in their eyes would add to a person's righteousness. Do you ever laugh at our man-made rules that don't make any sense? Sometimes kids do this, right? They say something and they say, ah, fingers crossed, right? But what does that even mean? What does that even mean? Shotgun, I called it first. Who's, who said that? Where is this rule in the law? It, it doesn't exist. And yet when it comes to our own self-righteousness, we create rules and regulations and a hierarchy of who's holier or who's more righteous and who's less holy and who's less righteous. And most of it is not found in Scripture. We have to be careful of this because this is the heart of the Pharisee. The real question is not why are these men eating in the fields. The real question is how did these Pharisees find them in a random field? Were they following Jesus from a distance? Did they have binoculars? Did they have a stakeout? Were they in ghillie suits lying in the field just waiting for them to pop up? Do they have paint on their faces and they pop up in the middle of the fields? Were they hiding in wait for them? You see, the Pharisees were too busy sin-sniffing. They were too busy watching for errors and trying to catch someone in trouble instead of just helping someone in need. And that can creep into our hearts as well. Charles Spurgeon, he says, The Pharisees seem hard at work supervising and accusing the disciples. This was a greater violation of the Sabbath. Did they not break the Sabbath by setting a watch over them? And today there are many so focused on what adds to a person's self-righteousness that they completely overlook the people who are actually in need. Today, much of the social justice culture, paying more attention to what you post or don't post, instead of actually going out there and helping people in need. Did you change your profile picture to a black square? No. Are you a racist? How about a star of David? You didn't put an Israeli flag in your profile picture? Do you hate Israel? What's wrong with you? Do you speak in tongues? Are you not filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you dance and worship? Do you not love God like David did? Do you play Hillsong or Bethel and worship? Are you trying to fund the cult? Do you attend church every Sunday? Do you not love the Lord? Do you don't do things exactly like I've always done them? Then you're not as holy as I am. Are you not a Calvinist? You're not as high and holy as I am. You don't believe in Reformed theology? You're not as spiritual as I am. Do you see the rules that we create? That we create this hierarchy and this lowarchy. I don't know what the other end of it is called, right? <laughs> of who's holy and who's not. Are you reading out of the NIV? Are you even saved? What's going on with you? We create our own rules and governance to prop up our own self-righteousness. And in this economy, it doesn't exist except in our own pride. Because it does nothing to help our righteousness in God's economy. Absolutely nothing. You see, Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. What the Lord is declaring in Isaiah 64 verse 6 is our very best is filthy rags. Our very, very best is filthy rags. 
And here in verse 6 of Isaiah 64, he's not talking about auto mechanic rags filled with oil. He's not talking about cleaning rags filled with mistoline or whatever you use to clean your house. Here it's speaking of menstrual rags. Our very best, our very best effort, it's disgusting. And that's why our self-righteousness is such a lie and tool of the enemy. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it tells us, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Jesus became our righteousness. We get to take Jesus' righteousness, and he took on our sins. How dare we think we can add to the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And this is exactly what, the Paul, what Paul tells the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 20 and 21. It says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How perfect was Jesus' righteousness? Absolutely perfect, 100%, and there's no adding to perfection. I know in school, sometimes you get 105 on a test. I never got how that made sense, but I always took the extra credit when I could get it because I needed it. That being said, we cannot add to Jesus' righteousness. We need to put Christ on, not our works, not our work ethic, not our church attendance or church service. That adds nothing to our righteousness because our righteousness is already perfect in the person of Jesus Christ. Check out Ephesians chapter 6, this famous portion of scripture in speaking about the armor of God. And each piece of the armor, it's pointing back to the person of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, it tells us, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. We need to guard our heart, the things closest to us, those organs that are so precious with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our self-righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. 
family, we have nothing to bring in terms of righteousness. The only thing we bring to the table in this transaction is all the sin. That's what we bring. All the sin that Jesus never was, that's what we bring to the table. He takes that sin and then he gives us his righteousness that we could never measure up to or have. We bring nothing in terms of righteousness. All of that can only come from Jesus Christ because our best is filthy rags. So let us be mindful to not put on self-righteousness, not to put on our works, but to put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is Jesus Christ and his ending and finishing work on the cross. May we put that on top of our lives. Back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 3 and 4. Jesus now responds to these Pharisees. We still don't know if they're dressed in camo or if they have paint on their faces or how they were hiding in the fields and caught them. But in verse 3 and 4, Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus asking the Pharisees, have you not read? Is just adding fuel to the fire. The Pharisees, they're already agitated that the disciples are, quote unquote, working on the day of the Sabbath, plucking grain, crushing it in their hands, blowing the chaff, and then eating. All of this, they're already angry. And now Jesus asks them, have you not read? Have you ever heard of a guy named David before? You see, the Pharisees, they were proud of how much they read and knew of the Old Testament. They were so proud of it. It's like if you asked an accountant, hey, are you sure you counted that correctly? Right? Someone who's really good at shooting. Hey, are you sure you could hit that target at three yards? I'm not sure if you could do it or not. Whatever you're into, you're into football. Hey, have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Patrick Mahomes? I don't know if you've ever heard about him before. Jesus is adding fuel to the fire. This must have stung the Pharisees a bit. Perhaps the disciples, their, their mouths are on the floor or they're snickering. They've read all the Torah, much less David, one of Israel's favorite characters. And what Jesus here is doing, he's poking at their love for the patriarchs more than their love for needy people. They love the patriarchs. They love the word, but they don't love the people around them in need. And we have to be careful with that. There are some Christians that love their American heritage more than their love for needy and broken people. We love our First Amendment and Second Amendment much more than people that are hurting and broken at times. We need to have the heart of Christ. He's here poking at their love for the Scriptures and their love for David, yet they're not paying attention to the Lord, how He meets people in their needs. They're mad that the disciples are taking and gleaning on the Sabbath and eating. And yet Jesus references 1 Samuel 21 when David is on the run for his life. More than likely on the Sabbath day, he comes to the tabernacle and he begs and pleads with the priest for some food. Do you have any food? He asks for five loaves of bread for him and his servants. And the priest says, I don't have any common bread. The only bread I have is from the table of showbread. The only bread I have is the holy bread. Yet because David was in need, 
Because David was broken at this point, running and fleeing from his father-in-law. Because his men were serving him, the priest gave him the holy bread. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 21 tells us, The priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken. So if David, when he was in need, on the Sabbath, it was okay for the priest to give him holy bread and enough holy bread for him and his servants. We need to deduct that it's okay for the disciples to feed themselves as they're walking along the road. The priests, they went to the law of mercy more than the Torah and the law. The priests fed David and his men from the holy table of showbread. Holy bread only meant for God and the priests. A holy bread that was only to be eaten in the presence of God. I love when we get to partake of communion together as believers. The first Wednesday of every month, we always have communion together. I encourage you to come out the first Wednesday of December. But something that always makes me rejoice during communion is to see how kids react to communion. Some kids, they just laugh at it. They start giggling. They don't know why. Why are we drinking my grape juice from this little cup? What's going on? Why don't we just get a big cup? What's happening? But sometimes at the end of the night, kids, especially pastor's kids, they'll find the matzah bread and they'll just eat it all up. They'll drink all the grape juice. I don't know why you guys are using these little cups. My sippy cup is far bigger. But hey, I'll just drink a bunch of these little grape juices. Should the pastor be angry and furious? Should the church leaders slap their wrists? How dare you eat of this bread or juice? I was at Calvary Philly last week at a men's conference, and we closed with communion. And sure enough, one of the pastor's kids ran on stage and just started housing all the communion elements. And nobody punished them. Nobody, how dare you go ask forgiveness of your sins? What's going on with you? And yet, this can happen to us. We can take something and say, hey, this is holy. No one should do this. And we don't realize the need for mercy and the need for grace. In verse 5, Jesus, now his second example, he says, Or have you not read, once again, hey, have you guys ever read this book before called the Old Testament, called the Bible? Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Once again, Jesus adds this a tiny bit more fuel to the fire. And here Jesus pokes at their love for the law more than their love for needy and broken people. They just love the law so much. They love the word so much, yet they're not helping the people that are in need. The book of James has a lot to say about that. If you see someone in need and you say, God bless you, brother, and walk away, you're not helping their need out whatsoever. You're not clothing them. You're not feeding them. Our love for the Lord needs to be demonstrated by loving Him with everything we've got, putting Him first, and loving our neighbor as ourself. Jesus' first example was David, and his second is the law and the priesthood. These men serving and aiding people in their obedience to the Sabbath and in worshiping the Lord work more on the Sabbath than any other day of the week. And when you consider what an Old Testament priest did for a living, he looks much more like the butcher at Costco or Publix than he does a holy man or the guys on Instagram or social media today. Think of all the slaughtering, all the blood, 
all the butchering, the preparing of fires, the tending to the fires on these huge altars, cleaning the blood, replacing the bread on the table of showbread, tending to the oil, trimming the wicks. There was so much work for the priest, and on the Sabbath, their work doubled. Because God tells them in Numbers 28, verse 9 and 10, to do two lambs for the Sabbath sacrifice and to do more to double the amount of work and sacrifice. And yet you wouldn't call the priests as breakers of the Sabbath, yet they work double the amount. I feel their pain. I love Sunday, but Sunday's not a restful day for me. It's probably one of my busiest days of the week. Our church staff, our volunteers, you who are serving, you guys know what it's like. Sundays are a great day, one of my favorite days of the week, but they're also exhausting. Are pastors and church volunteers breaking the Sabbath by ministering to people and by bringing them into God's presence? Absolutely not. Now Jesus goes, verse 6 and 7, he says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus points to the priests being exempt from work because they were serving in the temple. So just as the disciples would be exempt because they are serving Jesus, one who is greater than the temple itself. And here Jesus is poking at their love for the temple more than their love for needy and broken people. And the Pharisees, they loved their temple. They loved their temple. Yet the actual person and presence of God was right in front of them. God himself, God in human flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and was right in front of them. And yet they're arguing and picking fights with him over grabbing wheat and eating kernels of barley. The temple on the outside during this period was more beautiful than ever. Herod, a Roman ruler, added gold and so much beauty on the outside, yet on the inside, it didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. On the inside, the fires were not started by God himself like the previous temples. On the inside, there wasn't that moment when all of God's presence filled the temple and no one could come inside. They loved a building and a place that represented worshiping God more than they actually loved worshiping God. And I believe many of us are prone to this. We need to be careful of loving church more than the one greater than church. And maybe you come to church and you're happy, you're excited, but what happens if it's half empty? Oh, I don't know if I should go to that church anymore. What if they move the service outside, right? Like that happens every once in a while. What happens in your heart? I, do you know, Zach, do you know how hot it is in Miami at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning? My shoes, my shoes are going to get dirty in that grass. I can't worship the Lord there. It's the same. His people are there. His people are in here. Just because we attend church does not mean that we're close to Jesus. Just because we read the law and we read the Bible does not mean that we're close to Jesus. Just because we know about the patriarchs and the law and a bunch of doctrine does not mean that we are close to Jesus. We may find ourselves actually arguing with him and picking a fight just like the Pharisees. Do you know 
the person, Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you have that relationship with him? It is those that hear his sayings and do them. That's the wise man. What, what, what grows our bank account? Not attending the bank. Not going to the bank. Yeah, I go to the bank three times a week, so my bank account's going to grow. It doesn't work that way. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, what does your relationship with Jesus look like? Do you have one? Do you love him? And what Jesus is saying here is if the Pharisees truly knew God, they would know his heart. They would know what he desires. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. He does not desire to condemn the guiltless. And here Jesus is referencing Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Matthew Poole says, Where two laws in respect of some circumstance seem to clash with one another, so as we cannot obey both, our obedience is due to that which is the more excellent law. I think the way Chuck Smith would put it is if we're going to err on any side, we're going to err on the side of grace. If we're going to be prone to any side, let us be prone to the side of grace and mercy and not on the law and rules and regulations. There are those that are so right that at times they have to be dead right. They're dead right. Men, have you ever won an argument with your wife? Won an argument? The other day I saw a meme had me laughing so much. It's like a husband relaxing after winning an argument with his wife. He's in a sleeping bag on the front of the house with a dog laying next to him. <laughs> Sometimes we are so filled with anger trying to do what we want. What our mind says is right. That we're just dead and we lose it completely. We lose out. We miss out on the mercy and the grace. And then Jesus, he says here in verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So his first example is the biblical example of David and David's servants, the men with David. You could think of Jesus and his disciples with him. His second example was the law and lifestyle of the priests, that even though they worked twice as much on the Sabbath, they did not break the Sabbath. And his final point is that Jesus himself is greater than the temple, and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Here Jesus is saying he is God. He is the Lord and the creator of the Sabbath, so he knows what it means to break the Sabbath and not break the Sabbath. Verse 9, after this, he, right, you, you can't say he left this interaction with the Pharisees feeling happy or feeling good or being pleased. It must have been heavy. And yet it says in verse 9, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their what? He went into their synagogue. Who were the people that run the synagogue? The Pharisees. If there was ever a man that had a real reason to not go to church, it was Jesus Christ. The synagogue leaders were absolute hypocrites. He just argued with them on the way to synagogue. And Jesus knew every single one of their sins. It's not just the sins on the outside. Jesus knew the sins of their heart. He knew how they treated their wives. He knew how they treated their kids. He knew if they cheated on their taxes. He knew if they drove their donkeys faster than the speed limit to get to church that morning. 
He knew every one of their sins. And we've seen the friction of Jesus and these religious leaders growing. And the synagogue would be their home turf. And talk about church hurt. These religious leaders hated Jesus so much that they would grow to the point where they plotted to kill and murder Jesus. How do you think they responded when they saw Jesus coming inside the church on that Saturday morning? Do you think they were excited? Do you think they were happy? Oh, so good to see you, Jesus. Not at all. Have you ever thought of this? He never learned anything new at synagogue. Never. He knew where the pastor was going before the pastor knew where he was going. Yeah, that, he's expounding on that. That's not biblical. That's not right. That's not the right word in the Hebrew. He knew everything. And yet he's attending synagogue as a good believer should. He knew more than the church leaders. This pastor, I don't know if I could follow him anymore. I've studied so much. I know more than he does. No, he was the word. He is the word made flesh. He's perfect. He was better than anyone in leading a church. He was the bridegroom of the church. And yet we see him over and over again attending synagogue and attending the temple. Charles Spurgeon, he says, Jesus set the example of attending public worship. The synagogues had no divine appointment to authorize them. But in the nature of things, it must be right and good to meet for the worship of God on his own day. And therefore, Jesus was there. He had nothing to learn, yet he went up to the assembly on the day which the Lord God had hallowed. Friend, what's our excuse for not prioritizing church attendance? Trust me, Jesus had real excuses and reasons, and yet he still went faithfully. You see, the synagogue you won't find in Scripture. Synagogue was created when the Jews were taken to Babylon, and they said, you know what, we have to hold fast to the Word of God. So they started meeting together and teaching one another and expounding on the Old Testament. Yet Jesus found it important to go to church anyways. Even though there's church hurt, the pastors are literally plotting to murder him and kill him. Even though he knew their sin, even though they argued with him, even though he knew more than them, he still attended church. And I think the great reason why is because Jesus had a biblical reason for going to church. I think many of us with our American culture, we lose the true biblical reason for going to church. Going to church is not what can you do for me. Going to church is what can I do for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Going to church is not how can you serve me. Going to church is how can I worship and glorify and say thanks to God this morning. You see in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 and 25, it says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So our measuring stick for a good day at church shouldn't be, hey, did the pastor come and say hi to me? Did so-and-so come and say hi to me? Did so-and-so pay for my burrito after lunch? No. Our measuring stick for church should be, hey, did I stir up love in someone else this Sunday? 
Did I stir up love this Sunday? Did I exhort someone else this Sunday? Did I worship the Lord? Did I thank him for my life? Did I thank him for my family and his goodness? Did I worship him? Did I grow in my love for him? That should be our bar for if church was a good day or a bad day. And get ready. Jesus is about to stir up love and good works and exhort that broken and that needy person at church. Verse 10, it says, Behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Verse 11, it says, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a good man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the priests went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Jesus is here at church, and he's not sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, this sermon is going terrible. He's not there saying, these guys are a bunch of hypocrites. They're just arguing with me outside, and now he's trying to preach. No, Jesus is in the church seeing the most broken and needy person, and how he can bless them, how he can minister to them. Here in this section, we see something so beautiful and something so ugly, something so terrible. How beautiful that these religious leaders knew that Jesus could not help but be moved with compassion and be compelled to heal and help this broken man. The Pharisees knew it. That's why they asked him, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They knew he had the power to heal this broken man. Are we known for our compassion? Are we known as people that our love and our compassion and our pity compels us to help people in need, to help out the hurting and the broken person, or are we like those Pharisees? And how sad how ugly, how difficult that these religious leaders are using broken people as bait, trying to catch Jesus breaking one of their man-made rules. We know of the woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees literally grabbed this woman caught in the act of adultery. We don't know where the guy went, but they grabbed the woman. He may have been a plant, but they grabbed the woman and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. This broken woman, this daughter, and yet what they do is they use her for their own means. And now we have this man that's disabled, a dried up hand, a withered hand, and we see no pity, no mercy, no love, and no kindness. The Pharisees sought to use people who were broken and needy for their own selfish gain. Be careful with this believer. Sometimes we look at others and we don't see how we can minister to them. We see how can you benefit me. Hey, you have more money than I do. Why don't you give me some of that money? Hey, you got a new boat. I like boats. Why don't you take me out? Hey, you have a big business. Why don't you hire me? We go into church sometimes seeing what people can do for us instead of saying, hey, how can I serve? How can I bless? The Pharisees, they were looking around, seeing the broken and needy as a means to an end. And sadly today, many politicians... Many pastors and many Christians do the same. 
They're not moved with compassion when they see weary crowds. They're not brokenhearted when they see weary and exhausted people. Instead, like a ravaged wolf, they are licking their lips, seeing what they can get out of them. Maybe using that broken person to prove a point that they have when it comes to life. May we be moved with compassion as Jesus was here and still is today. Verse 11 and 12, Jesus, he speaks to these Pharisees. He answers their question. They ask, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So he asks them, hey, for your sheep, for your possessions, if they fall into a pit on the Sabbath, are you not going to pick them up? Are you not going to deadlift them out of the pit and, and free them to safety? How much more value is a man, a human being, an image bearer than a sheep? Therefore, it is, you know it is, lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus here points out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They would work hard on the Sabbath to protect their own possessions, to save their own animals, yet they're saying it's not lawful or holy to heal a broken and a needy person. Believer, what are the possessions you have that are too important for you? Right? Maybe your car is so nice, you see that person broken on the side of the road, they look a little bit dirty, they look a little bit sweaty, and you say, hey, I'll order you an Uber, don't worry, they'll be here in 15 minutes. I don't want to dirty my car, I don't want to dirty my vehicle. What is it for you? Are there certain possessions you have? I can't lend this out to people. It's too important. It's too special. It's too expensive. What are your holy possessions that you love more than broken and needy people? The other point that Jesus is making here that is so applicable to our day and age is that human life is far greater and more valuable than animal life. Human life is far greater and more valuable and more important than any type of animal life. See, sadly today, there are many that they either take human life and they're trying to degrade it to the point of animals. And there are others that they take animals and they're trying to raise it to the point of humans, right? Believers, some will probably get angry. People love their pets, right? Fur babies, that's weird. Don't do that. Don't say that. Babies are actual children, actual little baby human beings. That's what that is. That is an animal. That is a pet. We have to be careful with this. And sadly, many within church, they get angry. Don't you talk about my pets. Don't you talk about my animals. We've had people leave the church. How could you not let my dog come to church with me? My dog likes hearing the message. My pig, how are you not going to let me bring my pig in? Pray for the usher. Sometimes they get some curveballs, people hiding animals in their purses. And it's like, Lord, what do we even do with this? Uh, last week, again, we're blessed with the family that we're a part of. And in Calvary, Philly, I'm talking with them, making sure I'm not crazy. So they're telling me some of their stories. People walking into church with parrots on their shoulders and having to deal with them, take them out of the sanctuary. And they had this woman that kept wanting to bring her dog into the sanctuary and say, Ma'am, I'm sorry, you can't bring your dog in. If you have no one to watch the dog, lower the windows in your car, let the dog wait in the car, and you can get to him afterwards. A few Sundays passed, and they found a, someone brand new to the church, their first time at church, sitting in a folding chair in the parking lot. One of the ushers, ma'am, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Ma'am, you, you could go into church. It's okay. No, I don't know. This lady stopped me in the parking lot, gave me this chair, and told me to watch her dog in the car. <laughs> this woman literally stopped someone from entering God's house to watch their animal. 
Right? How about for you? Maybe that super annoying neighbor, that person you can't stand, if they're drowning in the pool and your favorite pet is drowning in the pool and you could only save one, who are you saving? Right? Some of you are laughing because you're saying, I don't know, Zach, you got to pray for my Christianity of it. As believers, we need to be Christ-like and we need to realize there's only one that is made in the image of God. And it, it comes to such a forefront when it comes to abortion and life, human life in the womb. This idea of trying to save the whales, save the eagles, but babies, not so important. Be careful with this. Human life is far greater and more valuable than animal life. Then in verse 13, Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. I love seeing how Jesus, he heals people in different ways. Sometimes he just speaks to them, and they're healed in an instant. Sometimes he tells them to go and do something, and on their way to doing that thing, they're healed. Sometimes he talks to them, he leaves, and they're healed when he's not even around. He heals in a bunch of different ways. Sometimes he makes mud, wipes it on the guy's eyes, and says, hey, wash out the mud. He, he heals in many different ways. But oftentimes Jesus will ask a person to do something that is completely impossible in their own strength. This man has a withered hand. His hand is dried out, and yet what does Jesus ask him to do? Stretch it out. I would if I could, Lord. You're seeing the same problem I'm seeing. Can you do something about this? You think of the paralyzed man, how Jesus says, stand up, pick up your bed, and walk. Uh, Lord, do you, do you realize the problem? you realize why I came, why my friends brought me here, don't you? And sometimes Jesus will ask us to do things that are absolutely impossible in our own strength. But he's checking to see if we have faith in him. He's checking to see if we have faith in him. Mark chapter 10 verse 27, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. What's that thing in your mind that you said, that's impossible, that, that will never happen. I could never do that. Perhaps that's the very thing that Jesus is asking you. Hey, why don't you take a step of faith? Why don't you try this? Seek him. Have your group of wise counselors around you. But oftentimes when Jesus heals someone, he asks them to do the very thing that's impossible in their own strength. And here what we see is that Jesus provides a free consultation. He does the procedure for free. And he gives the man all his physical therapy for absolutely free. No charge. In an instant, his hand is restored just like the other one. He goes from being withered and dried up and falling away to now completely restored, no therapy, no nothing. And yet we see the Pharisees' response. Talk about free health care, right? And yet look at the response of the Pharisees. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him. How they might destroy him. In Luke 6, verse 11, Luke's account of this, he says, they were filled with rage. There was not an excitement. Man, we were at church today, and Jesus healed Billy. Billy, yeah, the guy with the messed up hand, yeah, Jesus healed him. There's no excitement. There's no joy. Instead, there's an anger and a rage and applauding how to destroy Jesus. Sadly, many Christians, we do this today. 
Someone that we don't really know comes to the Lord, and in an instant, we're met with skepticism. Yeah, but are they really saved? What verses did they pray? What church did they go to? What worship songs did they sing? In an instant, God does something mighty, and we meet it with friction and plotting against it. Now, I am all for waiting to see the fruit. We should be fruit pickers and judging of the fruit, waiting to see the fruit. Is this actually a revival or not? Is this person actually saved or not? Just wait. The fruit will be sorted out. But to go out and begin discussing how this person is not saved or begin discussing how this is not really a move of God, be careful with this. Here Jesus, he's healing people. He's meeting them in their needs, their deepest needs, where no one else could reach them. And yet the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're just mad and angry that he's breaking their man-made, made-up rules. Be careful with that. Verse 15 through 18, it says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant. Be careful. Jesus here is not fearful. Jesus is always waiting on the timing of his father. Every time you see the Pharisees, their anger growing, their rage growing, sometimes you see Jesus, it's as if he drops a smoke bomb and just disappears out of the crowds. Because his time was not yet. He needed to wait exactly for the three years, exactly for the Passover, exactly for the perfect moment when God wanted everything to happen. And then once it was in motion, he tells Peter, hey, Peter, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified and die. And Peter's like, Jesus, that's not what we do here. Our ministry is not good if you die. you got to stay alive. And he, Jesus rebukes him. He withdrew from here, number one, the Pharisees and their anger, and number two, the crowds and the great multitudes. We see Jesus was not in the ministry to become a rock star. He was not in the ministry to become a huge personality. He would do all he can to squash the hype train and the PR, healing everyone and yet telling them, don't tell anyone about it. And then I love verse 18, that it would be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah saying, Behold my servant. I don't know when was the last time you thought of your legacy. It's, it's something I think about pretty often. What will my kids remember me for? What will the church remember me for? What will my friends, when they, when they think about me once I'm gone... What will, be, what will I be known for? And here Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. He's fulfilling the heart of God. And God doesn't say, behold my theologian. Behold my apostle. Behold Reverend Jesus. Behold my scholar. No, he just says, behold my servant. Family, are you Christ-like? Are you known for your service to God's people? Are you known for your service to your wife, to your husband, for your children? Or are you the very opposite? Are you constantly coming to church seeing who can serve you? Do you get home after a long day of work seeking, Honey, where's the food? Why is the house not clean? Why is not this put in this way? Or are we seeking to be Christ-like in being His servant? 
Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Friend, what will you be known for? When people think of you when you're gone, everybody dies. 100 out of 100 people, they die. Everybody dies. We're all going to go through it. What will we be known for? We can either be a great aid and help in our family loving God and wanting to come to God. Or we could be a great stumbling block and a rock of offense. We're saying, I don't want to love the Lord because my dad, he was this My dad, he was a Pharisee. My dad was one person at church and another person at home. My dad, he talked about the Lord all the time, but he was the laziest person I ever knew. Who will you be? What will your kids know you for? Will your kids grow in their love for God because of you, all the men here? Will your kids come to the Lord because of how much you love him? Or will your kids look at you and say, that dad is a hypocrite. We would go to church on Sunday, and yet he never loved mom. He never loved Jesus. He was one man on Sunday and another man the rest of the six days of the week. Here he says, behold, my servant. We can turn to Isaiah 45, 42. Again, this is a subject that's always deep in my heart. Isaiah 42. And here we see Jesus fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah Behold my servant, Isaiah 42, verse 1. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Behold, my servant. This is what Jesus was known for. Before the beginning of the world, he was going to be known as God's servant, the servant of the Lord. There are many smaller servants of the Lord. Paul identified as a servant. David identified as a servant. Many of the writers in the New Testament identified as a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. And here we see the temperament and the heart of the Lord. A smoking flax he will not quench. That, that candle that's about to go out, it's really an oil lamp and the wick is about to go out. He doesn't just quench it, he doesn't just cut it and get rid of it. No, he slowly but surely breathes life into it. That broken reed, he doesn't just grab it and throw it in the garbage. No, he tends to it, he cares for it, and he loves it. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll close here. Again, the heart and service of Jesus. May we be known for our heart of service to the Lord, to our family, and to the church family, to the world around us. Philippians chapter 2, worship team, you guys can come up. We sung about it earlier, but a great time in worship. Just the humility of Jesus Christ. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of the cross. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet he humbled himself to the point of being everybody else's servant. He humbled himself to the point where he would wash the feet of the disciples. So believer, I just don't want you to have regrets in this life. I don't want you to have any regrets. A lot of you, thank you for your love and your prayers for my mom and my dad. A lot of people lately have asked, hey, how are you doing with everything? And I'm just trying to live this life without any regrets. Any question that comes up for my mom, any conversation I want to have, I try to just have it with her. Because I don't want to have any regrets in this life. That's my desire for each and every one of you. That you would be able to live a life without regret, especially in the spiritual matters. Because that's the most important matter. So may our righteousness not be building up our own self-righteousness. May our righteousness be found in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. May we, like our Lord and Savior, seek mercy and love over sacrifice and man-made rules and regulations. May we be aware of our own heart, that we are not becoming like Pharisees, seeing people doing the work of God, seeing people come to God, and yet being angry and bitter, seeking destruction for that person or the means of how they arrive to the Lord. May we seek Jesus, may we love Jesus, not just his word, not just the temple, not just the idea of worship or music, but may we actually seek him. May we be like Moses, that we are never content with how much we know of the person of Jesus Christ, how much we know him, how much we know his personality. May we always hunger to know a little bit more about our Lord and Savior. And may we have that heart of a servant, not the heart of a fighter, not the heart of a destroyer, not a heart that's seeking to quarrel, but may we have that heart looking for those who need to be healed stirred up, and shown a little bit of love. So hey, let's all stand. The pastors are going to be up front. If you need any prayer, maybe you came here to church and you're heavy, you got that heavy yoke, that heavy burden on you, come, pray with one of the pastors. Lord, we thank you for this morning, Lord, and Lord, thank you that your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, help us. Thank you. Thank you that you know all of our mistakes. Lord, you know every mistake we've made in the past, in the present. Lord, you know every mistake that we're going to make in the future, Lord. And thank you for that forgiveness, that grace, that mercy. Thank you for your goodness towards us, Lord, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Lord, for every prodigal here, Lord, for every man and woman that knows that they're not right with you, that there's un confessed sin for every man and woman here, Lord, that's living a double life, Lord, for each of us that we know we have unholy things happening in our lives. Lord, we pray that this cleansing would begin in the house of God. Lord, may you cleanse our hearts. May that revival begin in every one of our hearts and our homes, Lord, before it can break out into our city, our county, our state, and our nation. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace towards us. And, Jesus, we love you so much. We're so grateful for you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.